Section 18 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section 18 on Egotism. Part 1. It is mentioned in the life of Salvatore Rosa that on the occasion of an altarpiece of his being exhibited at Rome, in the triumph of the moment he compared himself to Michael Angelo and spoke against Raphael, calling him hard, dry, etc. Both these were fatal symptoms for the ultimate success of the work. The picture was in fact afterwards severely censured, so as to cause him much uneasiness, and he passed a great part of his life in quarrelling with the world, for admiring his landscapes, which were truly excellent, and for not admiring his historical pieces, which were full of defects. Salvatore wanted self-knowledge, and that respect for others which is both a cause and consequence of it. Like many more, he mistook the violent and irritable workings of self-will, in a wrong direction, for the impulse of genius, and his insensibility to the vast superiority of others for a proof of his equality with them. In the first place, nothing augurs worse for any one's pretensions to the highest rank of excellence than his making free with those of others. He who boldly and unreservedly places himself on a level with the mighty dead shows a want of sentiment, the only thing that can ensure immortality to his own works. When we forestall the judgment of posterity, it is because we are not confident of it. A mind that brings all others into a line with its own naked or assumed merits, that sees all objects in the foreground, as it were, that does not regard the lofty monuments of genius through the atmosphere of fame, is coarse, crude, and repulsive, as a picture without aerial perspective. Time, like distance, spreads a haze and a glory round all things. Not to perceive this is to want a sense, is to be without imagination. Yet there are those who strut in their own self-opinion and deck themselves out in the plumes of fancied self-importance, as if they were crowned with laurel by Apollo's own hand. There was nothing in common between Salvatore and Michelangelo. If there had, the consciousness of the power with which he had to contend would have overawed and struck him dumb, so that the very familiarity of his approaches proved, as much as anything else, the immense distance placed between them. Painters alone seem to have a trick of putting themselves on an equal footing with the greatest of their predecessors, of advancing on the strength of their vanity and presumption to the highest seats in the temple of fame, 
of talking of themselves, and Raphael and Michelangelo, in the same breath. What should we think of a poet, who should publish to the world, or give a broad hint in private, that he conceived himself fully on a par with Homer, or Milton, or Shakespeare? It would be too much for a friend to say so of him. But artists suffer their friends to puff them in the true King Cambyses vein, without blushing. Is it that they are often men without a liberal education, who have no notion of anything that does not come under their immediate observation, and who accordingly prefer the living to the dead, and themselves to all the rest of the world? Or that there is something in the nature of the profession itself, fixing the view on a particular point of time, and not linking the present, either with the past or future? Again, Salvatore's disregard for Raphael, instead of inspiring him with anything like vain and self-conceit, ought to have taught him the greatest diffidence in himself. Instead of anticipating a triumph over Raphael from this circumstance, he might have foreseen in it the sure source of his mortification and defeat. The public looked to find in his pictures what he did not see in Raphael, and were necessarily disappointed. He could hardly be expected to produce that which, when produced and set before him, he did not feel or understand. The genius for a particular thing does not imply taste in general, or for other things, but it assuredly presupposes a taste or feeling for that particular thing. Salvatore was so much offended with the dryness, hardness, etc., of Raphael, only because he was not struck, that is, did not sympathise, with the divine mind within. If he had, he would have bowed, as at a shrine, in spite of the homeliness or finicalness of the covering. Let no man build himself a spurious self-esteem on his contempt or indifference for acknowledged excellence. He will in the end pay dear for a momentary delusion, for the world will sooner or later discover those deficiencies in him which render him insensible to all merits but his own. Of all modes of acquiring distinction and, as it were, getting the start of the majestic world, the most absurd, as well as disgusting, is that of setting aside the claims of others in the lump, and holding out our own particular excellence, or pursuit, as the only one worth attending to. We thus set ourselves up as the standard of perfection, and treat everything else that diverges from that standard as beneath our notice. At this rate, a contempt for anything, and a superiority to it, are synonymous. It is a cheap and a short way of showing that we possess all excellence within ourselves, to deny the use or merit of all those qualifications that do not belong to us. According to such a mode of computation, it would appear that our value is to be estimated not by the number of acquirements that we do possess, but of those in which we are deficient, and to which we are insensible, so that we can at any time supply the place of wisdom and skill by a due proportion of ignorance, affectation, and conceit. If so, the dullest fellow, with impudence enough to despise what he does not understand, will always be the brightest genius and the greatest man. If stupidity is to be a substitute for taste, knowledge, and genius, any one may dogmatise, 
and play the critic on this ground, we may easily make a monopoly of talent, if the torpedo touch of our callous and willful indifference is to neutralise all other pretensions. We have only to deny the advantages of others to make them our own. Illiberality will carve out the way to pre-eminence much better than toil or study or quickness of parts. And by narrowing our views and divesting ourselves at last of common feeling and humanity, we may arrogate every valuable accomplishment to ourselves and exalt ourselves vastly above our fellow-mortals. That is, in other words, we have only to shut our eyes in order to blot the sun out of heaven, and to annihilate whatever gives light or heat to the world, if it does not emanate from one single source, by spreading the cloud of our own envy, spleen, malice, want of comprehension, and prejudice over it. Yet how many are there who act upon this theory in good earnest, grow more bigoted to it every day, and not only become the dupes of it themselves, but by dint of gravity, by bullying and brow-beating, succeed in making converts of others. A man is a political economist. Good. But this is no reason he should think there is nothing else in the world, or that everything else is good for nothing. Let us suppose that this is the most important subject, and that being his favourite study, he is the best judge of that point. Still, it is not the only one. Why then treat every other question or pursuit with disdain as insignificant and mean? Or endeavour to put others, who have devoted their whole time to it, out of conceit, with that on which they depend for their amusement, or perhaps subsistence? I see neither the wit, wisdom, nor good nature of this mode of proceeding. Let him fill his library with books on this one particular subject, Yet other persons are not bound to follow his example, and exclude every other topic from theirs. Let him write, let him talk, let him think on nothing else, but let him not impose the same pedantic humour as a duty or a mark of taste on others. Let him ride the high horse, and drag his heavy load of mechanical knowledge along the iron railway of the master science but let him not move out of it to taunt or jostle those who are jogging quietly along upon their several hobbies, who owe him no allegiance, and care not one jot for his opinion. Yet we could forgive such a person if he made it his boast, that he had read Don Quixote twice through in the original Spanish, and preferred Lycidas to all Milton's smaller poems. What would Mr. Mill say to any one who should profess a contempt for political economy? He would answer very bluntly and very properly, Then you know nothing about it. It is a pity that so sensible a man, and close a reasoner, should think of putting down other lighter and more elegant pursuits, by professing a contempt or indifference for them, which springs from entirely the same source, and is of just the same value. But so it is, that there seems to be a tacit presumption of folly in whatever gives pleasure, while an air of gravity and wisdom hovers round the painful and pedantic. A man comes into a room, and on his first entering, declares without preface or ceremony his contempt for poetry. Are we therefore to conclude him a greater genius than Homer? No, but by this cavalier opinion, he assumes a certain natural ascendancy over those who admire poetry. To look down upon anything 
seemingly implies a greater elevation and enlargement of view than to look up to it the present lord chancellor took upon him to declare in open court that he would not go across the street to hear madame catalani sing what did this prove his want of an ear for music not his capacity for anything higher so far as it went it only showed him to be inferior to thousands of persons who would go with eager expectation to hear her and come away with astonishment and rapture a man might as well tell you he is deaf and expect you to look at him with more respect the want of any external sense or organ is an acknowledged defect and infirmity the want of an internal sense or faculty is equally so though our self-love contrives to give a different turn to it we mortify others by throwing cold water on that in which they have an advantage over us or stagger their opinion of an excellence which is not of self-evident or absolute utility and lessen its supposed value by limiting the universality of a taste for it lord eldon's protest on this occasion was the more extraordinary as he is not only a good-natured but a successful man these little spiteful allusions are most apt to proceed from disappointed vanity and an apprehension that justice is not done to ourselves by being at the top of a profession we have leisure to look beyond it those who really excel and are allowed to excel in anything have no excuse for trying to gain a reputation by undermining the pretensions of others they stand on their own ground and do not need the aid of invidious comparisons besides the consciousness of excellence produces a fondness for a faith in it i should half suspect that any one could not be a great lawyer who denied that madame catalani was a great singer the chancellor must dislike her decisive tone the rapidity of her movements the late chancellor lord erskine was a man of at least a different stamp in the exuberance and buoyancy of his animal spirits he scattered the graces and ornaments of life over the dust and cobwebs of the law what is there that is now left of him what is there to redeem his foibles or to recall the flush of early enthusiasm in his favour or kindle one spark of sympathy in the breast but his romantic admiration of mrs siddons there are those who if you praise walton's complete angler sneer at it as a childish or old womanish performance some laugh at the amusement of fishing as silly others carp at it as cruel and dr johnson said that a fishing-rod was a stick with a hook at one end and a fool at the other i would rather take the word of one who had stood for days up to his knees in water and in the coldest weather intent on this employ who returned to it again with unabated relish and who spent his whole life in the same manner without being weary of it at last there is something in this more than dr johnson's definition accounts for a fool takes no interest in anything or if he does it is better to be a fool than a wise man whose only pleasure is to disparage the pursuits and occupations of others and out of ignorance or prejudice to condemn them merely because they are not his 
whatever interests is interesting i know of no way of estimating the real value of objects in all their bearings and consequences but i can tell at once their intellectual value by the degree of passion or sentiment the very idea and mention of them excites in the mind to judge of things by reason or the calculations of positive utility is a slow cold uncertain and barren process their power of appealing to and affecting the imagination as subjects of thought and feeling is best measured by the habitual impression they leave upon the mind and it is with this only we have to do in expressing our delight or admiration of them or in setting a just mental value upon them they ought to excite all the emotion which they do excite for this is the instinctive and unerring result of the constant experience we have had of their power of affecting us and of the associations that cling unconsciously to them fancy feeling may be very inadequate tests of truth but truth itself operates chiefly on the human mind through them it is in vain to tell me that what excites the heartfelt sigh of youth the tears of delight in age and fills up the busy interval between with pleasing and lofty thoughts is frivolous or a waste of time or of no use you only by that give me a mean opinion of your ideas of utility the labour of years the triumph of aspiring genius and consummate skill is not to be put down by a cynical frown by a supercilious smile by an ignorant sarcasm things barely of use are subjects of professional skill and scientific inquiry they must also be beautiful and pleasing to attract common attention and be naturally and universally interesting a pair of shoes is good to wear a pair of sandals is a more picturesque object and a statue or a poem are certainly good to think and talk about which are part of the business of life to think and speak of them with contempt is therefore a wilful and studied solecism pictures are good things to go and see this is what people do they do not expect to eat or make a dinner of them but we sometimes want to fill up the time before dinner the progress of civilization and refinement is from instrumental to final causes from supplying the wants of the body to providing luxuries for the mind to stop at the mechanical and refuse to proceed to the fine arts or churlishly to reject all ornamental studies and elegant accomplishments as mean and trivial because they only afford employment to the imagination create food for thought furnish the mind sustain the soul in health and enjoyment is a rude and barbarous theory at propter vitam vivendi perdere causam before we absolutely condemn anything we ought to be able to show something better not merely in itself but in the same class to know the best in each class infers a higher degree of taste to reject the class is only a negation of taste for different classes do not interfere with one another nor can any one's ipse dixit be taken on so wide a question as abstract excellence nothing is truly and altogether despicable that excites angry contempt or warm oppositions 
since this always implies that someone else is of a different opinion and takes an equal interest in it. End of section 18